0: or listen on as I read Acts chapter 9 uh, concluding this initial episode of Saul verses 26 through 31 so we've looked at his conversion and his entrance into the church and then now uh, the early activities of Saul I'm entitling this sermon Saul's Journeys and then as we'll see he disappears from the scene for a little while until the end of chapter 11 so uh, excuse me, verse. Twenty three, not verse twenty six. Nine twenty three. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. When Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that. He was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them that he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists and when they attempted to kill him, uh, but they attempted to kill him when the brethren found out they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the church throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And let us pray together. Gracious Lord, as we conclude this initial story of Saul, we ask you that you would once more, open up uh, your word to us and shed greater light on it through the preaching and by the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, I've entitled this sermon, Saul's Journeys. Again, having seen his conversion and then his entrance into the church and his early activities, now we see him uh, on the move. And more so, uh, in fact, and even... Luke indicates, uh, as we'll see when we compare the narrative here, as we've already done, to what he says in Galatians chapter 1. We have seen that being converted en route to Damascus, he enters Damascus and joins the disciples there, now as one who was baptized. And so he becomes a member of the church as one who was converted, now himself a disciple. Already we see in Saul... Uh, What has been such a constant theme and not surprisingly uh, in Acts and that being the importance, not just of the church, uh, but even more particularly the importance of church membership. If anyone ever said to you, now, where exactly do you find church membership in the Bible? I think the book of Acts would be a good place to start. Uh, And this is something that I hope to make something of in the sermon. How is it that someone comes into the church? In other words, How does he become a member? Well, the first thing that happens is that he is converted. And having been converted, he is baptized. And then as a result of that, he comes into the church. There's more to it than that. We looked at that last time. We have something to say. There's teaching. There's fellowship. uh, There's brotherly love and so on. But what you notice, uh, not just from the viewpoint of the church receiving new members, is The eagerness with which these new converts were seeking to join the church themselves. The importance of church membership, I'm saying, is seen in the way new converts like Saul, uh, it would seem, were compelled by the spirit to join with other Christians. This is something that became more or less inevitable for them. Even as the church was being persecuted, even as the church was suffering, so their heart went out to other Christians and so they joined them. And so this also clarifies uh, something that Luke uh, in Acts consistently answers for us, a question uh, that is a very basic and simple question, but one that we would do well to ask often, and that is, what is the church? Just as I like to ask the question, what's a Christian? Well, what's the church? And that's a question that uh, that Acts is answering for us constantly. The church is a gathering of believers. That's What it is, I you could say much more than that, but it's never less than that. It's a gathering of people who are born again by the grace of the spirit. And that is why either those who do not profess Christ or those who profess him wrongly, like Simon, have no place in her company. But having said that, the first thing we see uh, very broadly is Saul's journeys, which we could divide in this way, uh, and we, we will have to borrow from Galatians to have a more complete picture. Uh, Luke, in the verses which we read last time, left him in Damascus. You remember he was converted en route to Damascus, and then he comes into Damascus, uh, and, and he says, After many days were passed... The Jews plotted to kill him. That's where we begin in verse 23. It turns out that those many days were three years, which we would not know from Luke, but we discover it from Paul's own account, which he recounts in Galatians chapter one. Let me read that again. Just verses 15 through 17. When many days had passed, that's Luke's account. Here's Paul's account. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not uh, immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You see, he didn't go straight to Jerusalem from Damascus. He actually went to Arabia there and he did. It turns out spend many days there, three years In fact, so uh, his first journey, uh, having come into Damascus, was to Arabia. Uh, And I hope to say something about the three years he spent there. Following this, we find him again in Damascus, even as he says, I returned again to Damascus. Well, here Luke says many after many days had passed. The Jews plotted to kill him. So there he is again. And we may resume with Luke's narrative now. Because the Jews were plotting to kill him, so he escapes with the help of others to Jerusalem. That's his second journey from, or or rather I should say his third. Because it's Damascus to Arabia, Arabia back to Damascus, now Damascus to Jerusalem. I didn't immediately go there, Paul says, but I did eventually end up there. And he has something to say about that as well in Galatians chapter 1. It is in Jerusalem that Saul, this new preacher and new Christian met the apostles, Luke tells us. But from Galatians, we know, in fact, it was only Peter and James. And so let me turn back to Galatians and read what he says in the next three verses. Then after three years, I went uh, to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. We also see not only uh, his meeting the apostles or these two apostles, Peter and James, but how the disciples there were reluctant to receive him, not only because of the bad reports. But also because, well, we read they were afraid of him. They did not believe he was a disciple. They knew who he was. Remember, he came from Jerusalem. Now he's returned. He's a Christian. Can we actually believe that? But also, we can imagine, because he disappeared for so long, and now he's appeared again, they were reluctant to receive him. But they do receive him, and he begins to take up, once again, a preaching ministry, now in Jerusalem, similar to that of Stephen. We find him disputing with whom? The same people, the Hellenists. And the outcome is exactly the same. They try to kill him, only unlike Stephen, whom they did succeed in killing, uh, with the help of his friends, he is able once more to escape, now uh, his next journey takes him to Tarsus again and Tarsus I say again because that is where he was born that was his hometown and there there we find him spending uh so it is said some 7 or 8 years now he disappears from the scene for a prolonged period as I say some 7 or 8 years and he does not reemerge until 11 chapter 25 we read that Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul but that's the last we hear of him in the book of Acts there are Saul's journeys the book of Acts until he reappears in chapter 11 but as a second point I want to consider the features of the narrative under several headings and the first is now I've already said something about this but let me just try to elaborate a little more in terms of the narrative which is before us and that is Not only Saul's desire to join other Christians, that is the church, he wanted to be a member, but that he found difficulty in doing so. Now remember, when Luke is describing the church, uh, he is describing the kinds of things that we are apt to face in our own experience. And it really isn't difficult, I think, to relate to the many things that Saul experienced. For one thing, we see how he wanted to do so. His heart was bound to theirs. Which is so evident in the epistles in fact well I think of John as soon as I say this so I won't say I can't think of anyone who ever loved his brothers like Paul did because I can think of John and I can think of others but I don't know of anyone who loved them more you read all through the epistles how Paul felt about his brothers in the church and it was here already in his conversion that his heart was knit to theirs how was it knit in the same way that he was converted. As a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in uniting his heart to his Savior. Also united his heart to the church. And serving the church became the great passion of his life. I'm saying. That this is is something that is inevitable. When a man becomes a Christian. His great interest becomes Christianity. But not only that. The church. And he realizes that the thing that. The Lord Jesus is doing, having gone to the father, is building the church. He's paid for sin. Now he's building the church. Now, how can a man become a Christian and how can a man have an interest in Jesus Christ and not become interested in that? Well, this became the preoccupying focus now of Saul's life or Paul's life. And this is one of the truest, one of the surest signs that a man is truly saved. As John says, it's his love for the brothers. Well, here was a man who loved the brothers. He hated them. Now he loved them. Amazing to see the work of grace in his heart. But do you realize that as eager as he was to join the church, he found great difficulty in doing so. Now I've already said that, but let me say it again. He found difficulty in Damascus. Now he found difficulty in Jerusalem. Are you surprised? I'm not surprised. It wasn't easy to persuade now his fellow Christians to embrace him. And to accept his testimony about himself. In fact, they were totally unwilling to do it. He was only received in either case by the testimony of others, by that of Ananias in Damascus and then of Barnabas in Jerusalem. And so, what ultimately made the difference was that he had friends to vouch for him in both places. And so that leads me as a next feature or a next point to speak of the importance of good friends. Remember, Luke is describing what it's what's it, what it's like in the church, both then and now. Well, do we do we imagine that things will always be easy for us in the church? That our entrance will be automatic. That everywhere we go that believers will accept and receive us. Well, if we thought that we were mistaken, even in the early church where the spirit was poured out in this mighty way, things weren't so easy. And indeed, perhaps you have already learned another uh, another lesson, uh, how how difficult things can sometimes be, even within the church, that even Christian people to whom our hearts are bound may suspect us. They may they may refuse to believe our claims or they may uh, they may say that our claims to Christianity Are false. I wonder if you've ever experienced that. I have. Paul had. But it's just here. Luke is saying. That we see the importance of true friendship. And we think of what Jesus is doing. When he's building the church. Well he's knitting people together. And what Ananias and Barnabas were to Saul. Were true friends. They befriended him. They advocated for him. They made this difficult path. Into the church. One which was. Smooth. It's clear to me in reading uh, Luke or reading Acts, Luke's account in Acts, that he's, he makes much of this. He's interested in these friendships that were formed in the early church and how important they were. We might even say strategic, though I doubt they would have thought of it in that way. Indeed Luke himself was part of this original group he knew something of it himself he knew how important it was he also knew and we know this too how fragile it is We see in Acts we see in the epistles how friendships uh, which were so important sometimes fail and break down We see how friends in the church uh, once knit together very closely as brothers are Are forced to part. We find this complaint not only. uh, Not only in. In acts but also. Also in the Psalms. Psalm 55. And we can think of Paul later saying something similar to this himself. Let's see verses 12 and following. He says it's not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me. Who is exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God in the throng. Now, that's what the psalmist is saying. That is a bitter experience. Paul would have time and again. That's the kind of experience we have ourselves. These friendships so important sometimes break down. We think of Paul at the end of his life in his great trial as he was in prison. He said, nearly everyone deserted me. But the Lord stood by me. You see, that's the other lesson. As important as these friendships are, they're not ultimate. We will find, thank God in heaven, that these friendships will be unbreakable. But in this life, people will disappoint you. But the amazing testimony of Paul at the end of his life is that for all of the disappointments he experienced, for the many times his brothers broke his heart, the Lord stood by me. The Lord sustained me. The Lord will bring me into his kingdom. He's the one we can count on. Now, that's not to diminish the importance of good friends. And I don't think Paul himself would have said that. In fact, it was clear if I were to read that in 2 Corinthians or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, that he was still eager for friends to come. He was still depending on others as much as he could. And so Paul's testimony is the same as ours. At least I think it is. I could say this much myself. I never would have made it this far in the Christian life. I wouldn't be where I am if it weren't for the many good friends I've made along the way. And really, that's what the church is. It's a gathering of friendships. Yes, these friendships will break down over time. We have to realize that. But we should also be thankful for how the Lord has used others in our lives to bring us into the church and to bring us along. And, and, and maybe you realize as well, by God's grace, that God has used you to help others. And so that tells us what it's like to be a Christian and to belong to the church. One of the most amazing things we will account, encounter are the friends we make along the way. But another thing we see, I think you can already tell this is a strange sermon, but this is just where we are. I'm trying to preach the text and this is where we find ourselves. Well, I never thought I'd preach this as a sermon point, but here's the point. Periods of long isolation. There are in the Christian life periods of long isolation three years three years he spent in Arabia now what was and 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 then this long period at Tarsus what was Paul doing during those times that are at the background of the narrative well he wasn't doing nothing don't think that but these were obviously periods of downtime you see we're so interested in the action I'm interested in the action tell me all about that But maybe there's some value in considering what he was doing, basically, when he wasn't doing anything. These prolonged periods of downtime, again, I'm not saying he wasn't doing anything, but they weren't so action-packed. Now, some suggest, and I don't reject this entirely, but I, I don't think it's right, at least for the first period, that he was active in evangelism. He was preaching, and simply we have no record of that. Now, I don't doubt that there's some truth to that, or at least... That it's very likely. Certainly, in the second period at Tarsus, I'm sure that he was doing that. But in that first period, prolonged period of isolation, think of this man. He's converted, he begins to preach, and then he's on the run and he disappears from the scene. And what was he doing all that time? Well, I'm saying that it was a period of downtime. I would think of him something like Moses. Moses was eager for the action and the Lord sent him off for 40 years and almost nothing happened until the end of that period. Well, it wasn't so long for Saul, but it was something like that. And I'm asking you and I'm asking myself, is there any value to that or were those just wasted years? Idle years with no value. I would argue that as for Moses, so for Saul. These were years that had tremendous value for what he was doing was he was communing with God. And he was communing in particular with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was there that the Lord Jesus was revealing Himself to him. It was there that this uh, this new convert was becoming the mighty apostle Paul that we now know him as, the great uh, gospel, and uh, and and his well his mighty convictions. And his profound insights into that gospel were all being formed in his heart during those days. I admit to some degree what I'm saying is speculative. But it is at least very likely. He was communing with the Lord. The Lord was revealing himself to him. And it was there that he came to this tremendous knowledge. Where he says in Ephesians 3, the the mystery was revealed to me. Well, have you ever thought to ask, when was it revealed to him? Again, it seems very likely that this was the period that Jesus Christ was revealing the mystery to Paul. By the way, the mystery is the church. Ephesians chapter 3. John Stott puts it this way, and I think this is very, very helpful. So I'm just, I'm just repeating Stott, and this I think is the common view, by the way. He needed time to be quiet. And Jesus now revealed to him those distinctive truths of Jewish Gentile solidarity in the body of Christ, which he would later call the mystery made known to me by revelation. By the way, if 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 you just listen to what he says in Galatians chapter one, he says, I was taught it through revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel or in a fuller form, Ephesians chapter three. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of, of, of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, uh, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Here we find him communing with the Lord having this revelation given to him, and having his theology, we could say, worked out. Something like, I don't think this is an entirely fair illustration, but something like his seminary training. Something like that. Well, the point is, as we try to relate to Saul here, or Moses in the wilderness, and I think we could think of many other examples in history and biblical history, is that the Christian life is in all action. In this very action-packed book, I'm not surprised that Luke doesn't tell us very much about this and that Paul has to elaborate in another place. But we need to realize that it isn't all action. That's something that I need to remind you of. It's something that I need to remind myself of often. So much of my life, I can say, and I'm sure you could say the same, so much of my own life is spent in quiet, isolation, in meditation, meditation. Of divine truths. At times I wonder. With a book on my lap. Am I doing anything? Well there isn't very much action. But there is value in that. There is great value. In communing with God. There is great value in contemplation of divine truths. There is great value in these mighty convictions being formed in your heart. And when that happens. Well then. Well, then you will find that you are ready for the action in whatever form. It may come in the form of a a vast period of evangelism. It might come in, in the form of discipling others. It might come in the form of persecution. But the question is, are you ready for these things when they come? Have you taken time to get to know your master? Do you know what it is to walk with God? Do you know what it is to commune with Jesus Christ? Has he revealed himself to you in his word? Do you know him? Do you see the value of the downtime, of the periods of isolation, or are you like me, or are you always itching for the action? No one can question that the Apostle Paul lived a life full of activity, full of, indeed, a flurry of action and activity. And don't you realize also that, well, as it came after this period of isolation, that that's often how it happens, That nothing happens, then everything happens all at once. But only when we're ready. We have to be faithful over a little before we could be faithful over much. That's the Lord's economy. But again, how often we forget the value of the quiet times. And we ought to see the value of both. But next I want to say something about the preaching of Saul. Since this is something that Luke is highlighting over and over again. Now, I've spoken often about uh, about what he said, his message, but also uh, we could call it the 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 element of action itself in the preaching. The act of preaching. Uh, we get a sense of both in what Luke has to tell us, his message in Damascus and Jerusalem was the same. He preached Christ. And if what I'm saying is right, he was preaching Christ, the gospel of Christ in this rudimentary form. It was the gospel in the seed form. It had yet to become this mighty theology. And isn't it interesting to notice we really don't get his sermons until later in Acts. We just get a small glimpse here. Because it wasn't the same full Lord gospel that he would later preach. But what I'm interested in here is not so much the message, as I say the message was the same, but the, the form of the preaching, the preaching itself. And this is something that This has always impressed me that Luke is is stressing. And it's the kind of thing that thrills us when we read of the great preachers through history. It isn't just that they were orthodox. It's that there was something tremendously compelling about their message. There was a note of authority. There was power. There was boldness that God was working mightily through these men and their preaching, though they would admit that they were as weak as any. Now, this is something as you know, that the apostle himself reflects upon in 1 Corinthians chapter two. And I want to read that again. Uh, I've read it many times from this pulpit, but it's helpful again to consider uh, uh, what he said when we think of the early preaching of Saul. He said, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. There's the message. But how did that message come? He says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech, that now the form of the preaching, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, Paul himself is reflecting on this, not just the contents of his sermons, but the form of his sermons, the power with which He preached them. There was something distinctive about the preaching of Paul. It set him at odds with the philosophers of his day. He was an orator, yes, in a sense, but there was something peculiar, something different. What we especially notice uh, is the element here in Acts chapter 9 of boldness. He spoke boldly. How often we find Luke saying this. He spoke boldly. It isn't just what he said, but how he said it. In another place we read, it's uh, it's verse 22. He confounded the Jews. He confounded the Jews not just with his arguments, but with the manner in which he spoke. There was a note of power and of authority. But especially boldness. That's what Luke is so fond of highlighting. He wasn't afraid. There was nothing of the fear of man now in the preaching of Saul. But there was a great deal of the fear of God. We can also think of the note of authority. Something of the authority that the Jews noted in the preaching of Jesus. Who has ever spoken like this with such authority? I'm not saying that Saul had the same authority, but something like it was now present not only in his preaching, but that of the apostles. And I would say, and I think there's much to learn from Acts here. That this is what makes preaching what it is. It isn't just its orthodoxy. It isn't just the doctrine. Those things are fundamental. But it is the note of authority. It is uh, the power, the boldness, the demonstration of the spirit and of power. And I wonder whether we know anything about that. Whether I know anything about that. It is the sense in which God himself is dealing with us. Personally and directly. We understand that I'm a weak instrument, but it's amazing to see what the preaching can do. How do we account for that? We don't ascribe anything to the man, but we are conscious of the fact that somehow or other God is working through the preaching. Just as we can say the same of our weak and feeble prayers, or we can say the same, as I said earlier, of the of, of the friends that we form. Are we really prepared to ascribe anything to ourselves or to others, or do we realize that God himself is working through The instrumentality of weak human beings. What confounds our unbelief. As it did the Jews. What inspires belief. What changes us. What ultimately persuades us. That the things which are preached. Or the doctrine or truths. Are in fact true. Is not as Paul says. That the arguments are after all so clever. I'm not saying there should be no logic in preaching. Look at Paul. He was a very clear and orderly mind and and uh and I desire to be like him in that way as well the preaching should be understood it should be easy to follow but that isn't what ultimately persuades us it's it's the power of the spirit in preaching and I'm saying that the same spirit who is at work In Saul's preaching is at work today. Maybe not in the same measure. That's a matter of prayer for you and for me. But he's still at work. Of course, there's another side to this as well. And this is something we've been seeing throughout Acts. We see the spirit at work through the preaching. We see how many received gladly what was said. How many were converted as a result of it. How the churches were swelling. But we also see the animosity it created. You see, when the word of God is actually going forth, it does both. It changes, it changes believers or it makes men believers or, on the other hand, it excites the animosity and the hatred of the godless. And so, no, not all are happy and not all embrace what is preached far from it. it is equally clear that the same message and the form in which it is delivered excites the animosity of man. And that is why we find Saul not only so instrumental in building the early church, but also why we find him like Calvin on the run. It's because men were trying to kill him, even as he had done others uh, just a little bit earlier. But finally, as a final point, as I say, the many features of the text of the narrative, we find at the very end in verse thirty one. Luke gives us a picture or a glimpse into the church in those days. One of his many summary statements, I I think he gives something like six, though. Well, I've read that in the commentaries, but I'm sure the number is greater than six by my count. This is the summary statement. So we have this detailed narrative. Then he says in summary form, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. That's a mighty statement. You know, I could easily preach a whole sermon on just that verse. Instead, I'm going to close this sermon with that. We see that Saul is off the scene. He's disappeared. He's on the run. We see these other Christians on the run. That's why we read not of one church in one place. But, well, the way I would like to put it is one church in many places. And so though dispersed, the first thing we see is she remained one, unified as one church under a common leadership. Uh, it is common for uh, the apostles in their epistles to say to the churches in, but it's noteworthy. Well, no, I thought I had read it, but it's not there. It is in the plural here. Oh, I see. Some of the variants have it in the single in the singular. Well, forget that point. Nevertheless, we could say, <laughs> some of your versions will have it in the singular, though. I'll go with the majority text on this. I'll go with churches. Nevertheless, we could speak of it, at any rate, as a church that was one, a church that was unified. Now, it's very easy to see that by what I say next, but let me just say this first of all. We read, In Jerusalem, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. There is the church united under the leadership of the apostles, gathering together as one body. The picture here is now they are dispersed, but the same is still true. Still, they were devoted to the same teachings, the same practices, and the same leadership. And so they had the next thing. They had peace, and they were edified. That's how I know the church was one. The church was at peace. She was at odds with the world. She was on the run. But these Christians were at peace with one another and under the teaching of the apostles and under the power of the preaching, they were being edified. What does that mean? It means they were being built up. They were growing in grace. Not only that, but number three, they were walking in the fear of the Lord in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a mighty point. What a picture, what a balance. You see, and and Luke has been eager to tell us all about this, not just the peace and the joy and the unity or the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for that, but also the fear of the Lord. These were true God-fearers, even as they were comforted in the Holy Spirit. They had seen, well, they had seen terrible things in their own day, even at the hands of the Lord, and yet they were comforted by the Holy Spirit. But finally, they were multiplied. That's the last thing he says. Yes, they were under fire, but they were growing, or they were dispersed, but they were growing. Here is true true revival. You want to know what revival is? Study Acts. Then study the first great awakening. But study Acts first and foremost. Listen to this revival does not mean that the church is at peace with the world. It might mean that, and it often does, but it might not mean that. It's not the disposition of the world that matters. It's rather what's happening in the church. If you want to know what revival is, look in the church. Look at the history of the church. Then you'll see. See what happens when there's a general awakening in the church. When the spirit is poured out in a mighty way. See what God is doing here through in and through these disciples. And I look at this picture. And I ask, do we know anything of this today I was reflecting on the power of preaching. I asked, do I know anything of that? Do you know anything of that? I hope we know it in some measure, but but wouldn't we like to know it in a greater measure? You see, that's the whole question of revival. Presently, we have a certain portion from the Lord, but do we long to know more? We see these disciples as a as a small group at the beginning of Acts chapter one. And often I think to myself for the time being, we're locked into Acts chapter one. That's not entirely fair. Because we live after Pentecost. I realize that. And yet I see certain parallels with Acts chapter 1. I see just a small gathering of believers. And I ask myself, what would it take for multitudes to crowd into the churches again as they have done in so many days past? Well, it isn't the methods of man. That won't do. And that's the error of the modern church. What it will take is uh, the very thing that those first Christians were doing in Acts chapter 1. And appreciate the point I'm making. When I say we find ourselves in Acts chapter 1, I'm saying that we're, we're small like them. And we're wondering, what's the Lord going to do? And what made all the difference is that they were praying. They were aware of the possibilities. The Lord told them to look for greater blessing. And so they were praying. And they waited. They waited. Remember what I said. The Christian life isn't always all action. Oh, but when the action comes, it's full of action. What are we doing while we're waiting? While we're looking for a greater measure of blessing? You see, when I read about the early church, I see something, I, I see something, a picture that inspires me. I'm, I'm very grateful to see what the Lord is doing in this church and in the church in general. Don't misunderstand me. I am amazed by the grace of God in my life and in, in the life of the other Christians, especially in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But I'm also conscious of our weakness of in terms of history, of the meager portion we presently have. And I'm saying that the thing that we need more than anything else and the thing that we ought to be praying for and the thing that acts ought to instill in us, as well as the long history of the church, is how desperately we need revival. That is to say, how desperately we need a greater measure of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we ought to be praying for. That's what I'm praying for. Here's a picture of what the church can be. We see God at work. And I ask you, do you want to know anything of that in greater measure? Is that the thing you're longing for? Is that the thing you're praying for? Amen. And let us let us go to the Lord now in song as we stand together and sing uh praise to our savior him 424. Please stand him 424.